0: Good morning. I cannot uh, fully express the uh, joy which uh, my wife and I had in 1985 when our firstborn son came into the world. I'm not sure if Julie would express that moment as joy (laughs) after hours of labor, but it was joy because of the wonderful gift of God. I never forget the moment. I was one of the first generation of uh, parents that, uh, in, the, in the modern period, that you know could be in the in the room. There, we'd gone through Lamaze classes and all that, and I was there in the room when Jonathan was born. And when he came forth, uh, by the way, the doctor was was uh, whistling "Amazing Grace," which is beautiful. The, uh, Jonathan came out of the womb, and I looked at my watch and it was 10.30 p.m. on May 24th, 1985, 37 years ago. Now, if you're remotely connected to the Methodist world and you know, and you realize that your son was just born on May 24th, your heart would be strangely warm. <laughs> now, I realize this is an amazing day for Jonathan to be born because this, of course, was the day that is so crucial in our history, when John Wesley went unwillingly down to a Moravian prayer meeting, and when he went down to that prayer meeting, at about a quarter till nine, uh, he was hearing uh, someone read uh, the Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And by the way, Seedbed has republished that preface. If you haven't read it, it's it's a tremendous preface. And as they were reading the preface to Martin Luther's, uh, commentary to Romans, Wesley says, "I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that my sins, even mine, were taken away, and I was delivered from the law of sin and death." Now, this is one of those moments in history, which, of course, it's you know we debate about what happened that night, but this is certainly a conversion-justifying moment in the life of John Wesley. I mean, he knew a lot about the gospel. It had been at 30,000, but he had already been a missionary. Uh, he had already been a missionary. He came to Georgia as a missionary before this. Remember how he wrote in the diary when he came back, I came to Georgia to convert the Indians, but oh my God, who will convert me? And on that night, May 24th, that something happened within his heart that opened him up to a new dimension, which we call justification. And of course, Martin Luther himself was talking about his own experience, what's called the Tower Experience, in the Black Cloister of Wittenberg, in this Augustine Monastery, where Martin Luther was studying that passage, in Romans 1, For in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed, a righteousness by faith from first to last. And, and uh, Luther writes that I felt myself born anew, I felt myself entering into open gates into paradise. And so here is uh, Martin Luther with his uh, Wittenberg story, his, his castle story, his tower experience we often call it. Here is John Wesley with his Aldersgate experience. These are, these are really important stories. We might call it for today's purpose the May 24th story or the Aldersgate story. Everybody. All Christians need to have that story. Now, they, they come out differently. Not everybody, you know, has uh, like, you know, the Apostle Paul, you know, where you get knocked off your horse on the Damascus Road. That happens to people. You have those. It, sometimes it's, it's a, maybe a period of time. I mean, think about Timothy where he was nurtured by his mother Lois and his grandmother, ne- grandmother Eunice. But the point is there's a point where you recognize that you need to align yourself and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And I think it's important to recognize that that on May 24, 1738, Wesley had heartwarming, life-changing, course-altering experience at Aldersgate. Now, uh, before Wesley had that experience, I think he used the word faith seven times in all of his preaching, and he preached a lot at that point. Yes, it's true, a lot of preachers are not yet justified. But once he became justified, suddenly his sermons were filled with faith. Sermons about faith and what it meant to put your faith in Christ and trust Christ. And so everyone, I think, you know, some stories are logically prior to other stories. And I'm actually here today to tell you about another story. But it's important to have that story in your life, in your journey. And I think uh, in my experience, uh, I, had a, I had my version. It's not quite as glamorous as like the you know, Luther's Tower experience in Wittenberg, but I was a Boy Scout, and I was coming back from hiking in the Appalachian Trail, and our little troop was trying to get back to Atlanta, and we were getting, it was supper time. We know we get back, and we stopped at this little Christian, it was actually Christian heritage only, but it was a very uh, secular today, but it was a school that a boarding school in northern Georgia called the Raven gap Nakuchi School. So we stopped there for a, for a meal, and then we're gonna on the road and go on down to Atlanta. So we walked in there, you know, to eat, and uh, we discovered that there was a chaplain that was going to give a talk after our meal. I was unwillingly listening to the message, but he gave a little talk on Philippians 3, and he shared how Paul counted all things rubbish they might be found in him not having a right of his own, but one comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And as I sat there, and I was listening to that man talk about, I don't even know his name, uh, from Philippians 3, I heard the gospel for the first time in my life. I mean, I had heard it hundreds of times growing up from my my own dear mother and father in church. I, we, had, we were one of the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night groups. But that day, I heard the gospel. And something happened in my life, and, and shortly thereafter is when a, yes, a Southern Baptist uh, roof contractor led me to Christ in his home. And so I, I look back and I have, you know, I, you know Luther had his tower experience. Uh, Wesley had his gate experience. I had my school cafeteria experience. But the point is, it's a, 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 a necessary uh, story for your life to even understand what I'm about to tell you. What is after that? Because the great, the great insight of the Reformation is the recovery of a lot of lost truths in the in the gospel, and we want to we want to herald that. We want to we thank God for the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith. We thank God for the recovery of the doctrine of grace alone and of faith alone and of sola scriptura, the scripture alone. We thank God for all of those great gifts that were recovered in the 16th century. But by the 18th century, it was clear that we had made, uh, there's been a challenge for the church in equating salvation with justification. Uh, that is the essential theological problem that Wesley faced. And so is nothing wrong with, uh, uh, you know, God, God bless him. Martin Luther explained to us that we have an alien righteousness. We get that. We, Wesley said we're all, you know, dung hills covered in snow. Uh, all of that. We get all of that. But the point is, is there anything else to say is it is really the last thing that God says to us is that he looks at us through a different set of glasses, and now when he sees you, uh, he sees righteousness of Christ? Is there anything else after that? Is there any kind of transformation of our lives beyond that? Or do we simply live and die in alien righteousness? So part of what happens in Wesley's life, we now come forward to New Year's Eve, bringing in the year 1739. This is 283 years ago. John Wesley is going down to one of these all-night prayer meetings bringing in the new year. Wesley liked to go to evening prayer meetings. And so they did this. By the way, we've done this many times here at Asbury. In my early years especially, we had a, like a watch service going into bringing bring in the January 1st. Wesley did that. And this was uh, not at Aldersgate, but this was a place called Fetters Lane. Now, it's amazing to me that Aldersgate has come down into our kind of vocabulary, and our, we talk about it endlessly in our tradition, but we don't talk about Fetters Lane. But actually, Fetters Lane, in some ways, is even more important because it's here that we really get to understand how Wesley understood a course correction in the theology of the Reformation to bring us to where we are in our message to the world. He's at this prayer meeting, and it's around 3 o'clock in the morning when God does something. I've always wondered why God can't, why can't God move in four in the afternoon? I mean, if you know me, I, at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, I am horizontal. I am in bed. And so if God moves at 2 a.m., that's, that's, that's okay, that's a thing. I gotta, I gotta work for that. So they're praying into the night, and it's at three o'clock in the morning that the, uh, the Holy Spirit shakes this, this place in Fetters Lane. I'll let you hear Wesley's own words. He's on Monday morning, January first, 1739. Mr. Hall, my brother Charles, were present in Fetter's Lane about sixty of our brethren. At about three in the morning, we were constantly uh, continuing instant in prayer, and the power of God came mightily upon us. Inasmuch as they cried out with exceeding joy, and they, many fell down to the ground. And as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of, this, of his majesty, we broke out with one voice, we praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. It's amazing that they, after all this, they came out with the today, the, with liturgy. How many times do you get baptized in the Holy Spirit and you come out with liturgy? I love it. Wow, that's just a little note there. The point is that Wesley got filled with the Holy Spirit and his life was redirected and changed in a new, deeper way. Now, Wesley himself called that night his personal day of Pentecost. You see, we, justification orients us to Jesus Christ, but part of our message is that salvation is Trinitarian. God wants to orient us through the whole triune God. The Holy Spirit is here to do things in our lives. This is the doctrine, we call this, of entire sanctification. Sanctification is a work of the Spirit in our lives that does something to purify us and make us holy. That's what our text is about today, bringing holiness to completion or perfection in the fear of God. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood doctrines by uh, people who don't know what we're talking about. It's, it's, it's missing, I think, mostly because we understand sin, especially in the Western world, mostly as a forensic problem. And so it's a legal thing. That's where justification comes from. So we think about sin in legal terms. So because of that, we think, okay, therefore, sanctification must mean that we have no more sin in our lives. That is not, That is not what we mean by entire sanctification. Because sin actually has two dimensions, and I think all of you know this. One is the, the legal side. Sin is lawlessness, the scripture teaches us. but also sin is a broken relationship. There is a relational break with us and the triune God. We are out of fellowship. So one way of looking at sin is not merely uh, laws that we disobey of God, etc, but you should actually see sin as all the places in your life where at that point you elect the absence of God. So when we go over here and we do this and we do that, apart from God's holiness, we are at that point electing the absence of God. We are electing, we are breaking a relationship with God at that point. Now this is really important because you can be justified on a deserted island. But you can't be sanctified there. Because sanctification is also relational. It's transformative not only with you and the Lord, the triune God, but also in all of our relationships. It affects us as a community. It affects us as a nation, as a world. And so this is the insight of the holiness movement, that alien righteousness can become native righteousness. Imputed righteousness must become actualized righteousness. Declared righteousness must be embodied righteousness. God actually has a plan to transform your life. So so here's Luther pictures us as fleeing uh, damnation, f- fleeing eternal damnation and all of that and fleeing to the cross as condemned sinners. Absolutely, we, we get that. But once you come to the cross, we might say, we keep on running. The Holy Spirit pours on. Now we're leave, fleeing the cross out into the world as transformed people. Now what happens is your heart, I mean, th- th- you're justified by faith. You're also sanctified by faith. But what he's saying is God has a second blessing t- for you. That is the work of the triune God. So just as we invite Christ into our life, we must also invite the Holy Spirit to come in and redirect our hearts. Now, you should view it like this. Even Even if you're justified and you have trusted Christ for your salvation, for your justification, we all understand the dynamic where you still have this pull in your life towards sin. We all get that. There, there's that, 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 I call this the gravity. There's a gravity pulling you back into sins of your old life. That's an experience that many people can talk about. So what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes, the gravity changes. And now, rather than having your heart directed toward, you know, you're pulled toward sins, you are now being, your gravity is now toward holy love. That's the Wesleyan message, that God is doing something that redirects our heart. So for, for many discipleship stuff out there, sanctification really has become what I would call sin management, you know, where we manage people's sins and we go through process to confess sins and we fall into them again, we confess them again. That is not God's plan for you. God's plan is actually to do something in your heart which redirects your heart. Now, it doesn't mean that you never sin again, but what it does mean is this, is mean that sin is no longer, you know, uh, sin becomes your mortal enemy, not your secret lover. That is the change I'm talking about. Where now your affections have been changed and your heart is made alive toward the things of God. It doesn't mean we don't sin, we don't have issues, but it's our, it's our enemy. We are now redirected, our heart is reoriented toward perfect love. Sin is still encamped around us on every side, trying to get us, but we've now burned the secret agreements we have to nod and wink and dance with sin in the night while we confess Christ in the day. We leave behind the agonizingly torn hearts when we always live under condemnation because sin keeps on creeping back into our lives. To be sanctified is to receive a second blessing, where God gives you something is a gift that changes your orientation. It is a tremendous gift from God, and this is with the language of entire sanctification, to fill your entire being with the presence of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He is the presence of God in your life, the empowering presence of God. So when we talk it entire, it's used in reference to Greek, not Latin. The Latin is our problem. We hear entire of cake, we think, okay, everything is done. We're all, you know, we're perfect. But the word in the Greek, it's you always can improve on it. H.C. Morrison once said, there's never a state of grace that cannot be improved upon. And Jason McFeeders, our second president, was once, whenever people sat in the hollow down here and said, how are you doing? His response was, I'm improving. Now that's a great response. I'm improving. Wesley understood that holiness is not simply a negative turn. It is not simply about eradicating sin in your life. If you were to eradicate every sin in your life, you would only be halfway there. Because this is also about when his holiness comes into your life, your life is transformed And you now are bearing fruits, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what he's talking about in Galatians. It's about God transforming us and those fruits actually become embodied in our lives. It's not simply about avoiding sin. It's about growing fruit in our lives. This is what Wesley means by the self-forgetful heart and a life engulfed by love. So I believe there are many of you uh, here today that, of course, you have you have had a May 24th story, but you've not had a Fetters Lane story. Now, in my experience, I I had my you know school cafeteria experience. I had my, my, my life was I was justified, I was forgiven when when. God saw me, he saw the righteousness of Christ because of the shed blood of Jesus. But fast forward a few years. In 1977, I was in college. Uh, I'd been elected president of my class in college. I was you know, going in my career, things I wanted to do. And, but I'd had this experience with Christ. But I was, you know, agonizingly torn. I was, had all the issues and challenges in my life. And I had never thought about this. I didn't even know about this. I grew up being a Methodist. We never talked about it. (laughs) You know, it's amazing. I never heard this growing up. And so someone said to me, uh, do you want to be completely filled with the presence of Christ? Do you want to be completely his? I said, yeah, I do. I do. I want that. And they, they laid hands on me in a college dorm Young Harris College, and prayed for me to receive the Spirit. And my, my life was, I, I felt to this day, an orientation of my heart has been changed. I mean, I obviously do crazy things. I'm the president. I constantly do crazy things. But the point is, I have had a reorientation by God to this day. Or my life is now, the gravity of my life is now toward perfect love, toward, toward God's holiness in my life. That's what I long for. That's what I want. That's what I'm praying for. That's what, that's my, my whole energy in my life is to, to serve him. This is the great gift that God has for each of us. So I believe, and I want to just, um, I have this as an illustration because people say, well, you know, I've been prayed to receive the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, I want the Holy Spirit more and more and more in my life. And so when I, in 1977, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jessica's going to verify this. This glass is going to be completely full. Okay, this is the Holy Spirit. This is me. And the Lord filled me with the Holy Spirit. There it goes. I am filled. Jessica, are we full here? Okay, I'm certified by the chaplain of Asbury Seminary to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But this was my life. You can see this glass is full of all kinds of stuff. Because God, I, these, are all, these rocks are all the places I'd elected the absence of God. And I had those. So the Holy Spirit starts working my life, and next thing I know, no more. Thanks be to God. Next thing you know, no more. Thanks be to God. Well, see, look at this water. I need more Holy Spirit. Give me more Holy Spirit. I get filled again. You know, the book of uh, John and, and Luke, uh, and John and Acts, uh, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit four times. I, I went at least four times. My point being is that this is something where we, 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 we are filled with the Spirit. We keep on being filled with the Spirit. Because as he reorients us, he that's what this text is about, our bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He wants to bring us to completion. And so I really want to call you to just pray that God would open your heart today to receive a special blessing and have your heart reoriented. Now we have a, a real gift today because I've asked some amazing leaders. Dr. John Oswalt is here. Um, We have, I'm going to mention David Thomas in a minute. David Thomas is here. Uh, Al Coppage is here. These are some senior leaders that have decades of experience in praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And they're going to be here. I'm going to ask David to come forward and kind of close us out a bit here. But I do want you to pray as the worship band sings, and we're going to have you come forward. Also, those that are watching this or participating online, we want to speak to you too. So, um, David, please come forward. I'm going to ask David to close this out and maybe give us an invitation that you can help us to understand God's work. Jim.